Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now so that we consider our ways and turn our steps toward your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we continue our series in the book of Matthew. And last week we started to look at the first work of Jesus as he has been anointed as God's Messiah by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. We've been looking at that previously in chapter 3, how he was baptised by John the Baptist and proclaimed to be uh, God's son uh, by God from heaven. And we saw that the first work that the Lord Jesus had was to go out into the desert and to fast for 40 days and for 40 nights and also to be tempted by Satan. And that's what we looked at last week was the the concept of him being tempted by Satan at all and recognising that this is really just round one in a great battle, a great war that has been waging between Satan and God for many years, for centuries, for millennia and was ultimately won by Jesus at the cross. And so we've been studying these temptations of Christ and starting to look at them and this week we're going to be looking at the first temptation that Satan attempts upon Jesus And what is this first temptation that Satan comes to Jesus after he's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the desert? Well, we read it in verse 3. What is the first temptation? It says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What is the first temptation that the Lord Jesus faces from Satan? Well, it's the temptation to turn stones into bread. But does this seem like a real temptation? After all, doesn't God want us to eat food? Eating food, eating bread, it's not sinful in itself, is it? And doesn't Jesus produce food miraculously at other points in his ministry? Doesn't he take water and turn it into wine? And doesn't he take a few loaves of bread and a few fish and turn them into many loaves and many fish? So why is this first temptation really a temptation to sin? Well, I think the key words that we need to note this morning that makes this a temptation, they come before the suggested action that Satan proposes to Jesus to do. And what are those words? Well, look with me at verse 3. Verse 3, Matthew chapter 4, it says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What is Satan doing here? Well, Satan is doing what Satan does best. And what is that? Encouraging unbelief in God and unbelief in God's word. Why is that the case? Well, what happened to Jesus 40 days earlier? He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. What happened before he went into the desert. He was immediately thrust into the desert after something happened. What was that? It was his baptism. And what happened at his baptism? When he came up out of the water, what happened? The spirit came down as a dove and rested upon him. And what else? Look with me at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 3. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What happened before the Lord Jesus went into the desert? Before he was tempted? God himself spoke and declared that Jesus is his son and Jesus is the son whom he loves and Jesus is the son whom he is well pleased with. And so what is Satan doing? 
He is trying to get Jesus to disbelieve that God is his father, that God is a father who loves him, that God is a father who is well pleased with him. And how is he doing it? Using food. Using food. Now, why food? Why is this temptation to disbelieve God, that he is God's son? Why do it with food? Well, Satan knows that humans need food to survive and that humans will often sin in order to have food to survive, in order to live. And what else does Satan know? He knows that hunger pains often cause people to commit truly awful sin. People know that they need food to survive and so they will sin in order to make sure that they have enough food. But if they're particularly hungry, they will do awful things in order to satisfy that hunger pain. And Satan knows this. Really, does that happen? Well, it worked with Esau many years earlier. Esau is a classic example. He sold his birthright for stew. Lentil stew, apparently. I don't know if I've ever had lentil stew, but it must be pretty tasty. Esau sold his birthright for stew. Now, is Jesus hungry at this time? Yes. More than hungry, really. He is starving. 40 days and 40 nights without food. I was trying this week and I was talking with Jill. What does that even look like in a person? What does it feel like? What would Jesus have looked like? Because going into the desert, he, of course, is sinless. He would have been self-controlled in his eating habits before going out into the desert. He wouldn't have gone out there with, you know, like a big fat bear ready for hibernation. He would have gone out there without much on him. What would he have looked like? His face, his body... 40 days and 40 nights without food. He is intensely hungry. He is starving. And not in the sense that kids say after they've missed breakfast, I'm starving. Or they miss lunch and they say, I'm starving. He is literally starving. If he goes much longer, he will die. And Satan knows this. And he knows that humans will sin in order to get food when they are starving to satisfy those hunger pains. And what else does Satan know? Satan knows that food is pleasurable to humans as well. Satan knows that humans will sin in order to gratify their taste buds. Really? Well, it worked with Eve, didn't it? We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, was attractive to her, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Satan knows that people will sin in order to satisfy their taste buds. Not just to satisfy their hunger, but to satisfy their taste buds. But why connect food with Jesus being the Son of God, having God as his Father? Why does he say, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread? Well, Satan knows that every human knows that a good parent provides food for their child. It's almost impossible for a mother to hear a baby crying of hunger and not try and do something to alleviate that cry of hunger. Humans know that well-fed kids are well-loved kids, generally speaking. The Bible even teaches it. We read it at the beginning of the service from Psalm 37, verse 25. It's The author of the psalm says, I was young and now I am old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. 
The righteous always satisfy the needs of their children. He was young, he is old, and he's never seen it, where a righteous person with their children would be begging because the righteous person makes sure that the child has something to eat. Even if the righteous person has to go without himself, he will do that in order so that his children do not have to beg bread. And Jesus teaches this principle a few chapters later in in Matthew chapter 7. He says in his Sermon on the Mount, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus himself teaches that children are provided for by their parents. And so if Jesus is starving in the desert, the question is easily raised by Satan, isn't it? Is Jesus really God's son? Look at him. 40 days, 40 nights, no food. Is he really God's son? Or at least he may be God's son, but is he the beloved son? Is he the son whom God is well pleased with? Just look at him, starving. Jesus, look at yourself. Can you honestly say you are God's son? When you've been without food for 40 days and for 40 nights, can you really say you are God's beloved son and that he is well pleased with you? What does Satan want Jesus to conclude? He wants Jesus to conclude that either God is not a good father because he's not providing for the needs of his son or that Jesus isn't God's son. Unless, Satan proposes, unless you are able to make bread miraculously right now, That would then, of course, prove that God is a good father because you've then got bread and that you are his good son with whom he is well pleased. But what would that mean? If Jesus turns those stones into bread in order to prove that he is God's son, what would that mean? Jesus is trusting his stomach, not God's word, to know if he is God's son. He's trusting his stomach over and above God's word. God declared from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 40 days earlier. Is Jesus going to believe that or does he need food to prove that it's true? That is what Satan is proposing and what does Jesus do? Jesus stands firm. He trusts God's word and he rebukes Satan with scripture to the same effect. What scripture? Well we read in verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What do we live on? Not bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes scripture here to prove to Satan that he can be starving and still be God's son. And it's interesting where this quote comes from. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which we read just before. And what is the context of Deuteronomy chapter 8? It's speaking again and again in that passage. If you go back and read it again this afternoon, you'll see again and again it speaks about the way that God provided bread from heaven, manna, to the people of God who were in the desert. Similarly to Jesus, Jesus is in the desert, but they were provided with food, whereas Jesus was not. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, yes, I know that God provides his children with bread, even in the desert. But look Satan, at what God says 
in the midst of talking about providing physical food. What's the other half of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which Jesus quotes? Look with me now. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus quotes half of it, but what does he say in the other half, and what does God say in the other half of the verse? Page 180, if you have a church Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 3. He, that's God, humbled you, the Israelites, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is the purpose of bread? Bread from heaven is to teach the Israelites that they're to live on God's word. What is Jesus effectively saying to Satan? He's saying, Satan, if you're suggesting that God provided his children with food in the desert and has provided his people with food outside the desert all through history, and therefore I'm not a child of God if I'm starving in the desert, look here where God is speaking about providing for his children and what does he say? He says... Physical food is there to teach us that ultimately we depend upon God's word, not food. It is God's word that is nourishing to us ultimately, not physical food. How is that true? When we start to think about it, it makes sense. Food is only nourishing because God sustains both food and human by his decree in heaven. What do I mean? When we eat, the only reason the chemicals that go into our mouths and down to our stomachs, the only reason they nourish us is because God has declared that it would be so. God has said, this is how my nature, my creation is going to function. This is how humans are going to function. And he continues to uphold it by his powerful word, this system that is in place. When you put a hamburger or fruit or rice or whatever it may be into your mouth and it is absorbed by your body, it is only because God has said that it would be so. It is his word that underpins it all. And so man does not live by bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what else does this mean? How is God's word nourishing? It is only God's word that will give eternal life. It is only God's word that has decreed that we would have life in this world now by food. But it is only by God's word that we can know the way to live forever. That we can be sustained forever. That all his promises would be fulfilled. Including that promise in Psalm 37 that the righteous would never beg bread. That will be fulfilled in heaven. The righteous will be there and their children will not be begging bread. Those who are believers in Christ Jesus and are there with them, they will not be begging bread. So Jesus did what? He trusted God's word, not his stomach, to know that he was God's beloved son. Christ's stomach was not his spiritual thermometer. What was? God's word. God's word is his spiritual thermometer. Now, how is this helpful for us? Well, like Eve, we've often doubted God's word. Satan comes to us and he says the same thing that he said to Eve. Did God really say? And we start to question God's word. Particularly because of our stomachs. Because of our stomachs, just like Eve. How? Well, we use our stomachs as spiritual thermometers. We use our stomachs to know our relationship with God. How so? Well, we often will believe that an empty belly means that God is displeased with us and may not even be our father. 
The fact that we are hungry, may not have enough money in the bank account to buy food, we start to think, is God really my father? Or is he displeased with us? What are we often like? We're like the Israelites in the desert who hungered and grumbled against their heavenly father because they didn't have food in their bellies. Who else are we like? We're like the Israelites in John chapter 6, the Jews in John chapter 6, verse 30, who Jesus fed physical bread to. He fed the, the 5,000, but they wanted more. They followed him around and around, and they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What will you do for us in order for us to believe you? God gave our forefathers manna. Jesus, come on, give us some bread. If we're to believe you, you must provide for our stomachs. That is how we know whether you are right, whether you are from God, and that is how we will know whether we are going to be God's children through you, is if you fill our stomachs. What are we like then? We're like children who say to a parent, you only love me if you give me chocolate and lollies. I know you're a good father and that you love me if you give me what my stomach desires. And that's how we often will treat our Father in heaven. But what's the other way that we use our stomachs as spiritual thermometers? Well, we use them like the prosperity gospel heretics often. How so? By believing that our full bellies means God is well pleased with us that he is blessing us as his children. I must be a child of God because I have a full belly. I have a full bank account. I can provide food for myself. And therefore, God must be pleased with me. But what's the problem? God often speaks in his word of his displeasure, of his disowning those who are wealthy and those who are fat, those who have fattened themselves, particularly through sinning against their fellow man. What's a good example of both types? A full stomach going to hell and an empty stomach going to heaven. Well, Luke 16 gives us a very good example from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. Turn with me to page 1037. This parable that the Lord Jesus speaks, although some may say it's not a parable, it's actually a true narrative of an actual person called Lazarus and a rich man. Jesus speaks this, and it goes against our thoughts, our natural tendency to think of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Page 1037, reading from verse 19. Oh, sorry, uh, page 1036. Luke 16, reading from verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. How do we know if we are children of God and God is pleased with us? It's if God's word says so. This parable teaches us that it is not our stomachs that indicate who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. It is God who says who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And who does God say his children are, whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased? The Bible is very clear that it is those who are in Christ Jesus. Why in Jesus? Why not in ourselves and our own works? Well, our birthright was sold long ago for food. Adam and Eve, they sold it on us thousands of years ago. And then we, if we're honest, we admit that we have sold our birthright for food as well. To satisfy the desires of our stomach, we have been far too willing to sin in order to do so. It is not our stomachs that declare whether we are right with God. It is God and it is those who are then in Christ Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, he never distrusted God and his word. He never trusted God on the basis of his belly, but trusted God on the basis of his word. And therefore, all those who are in Christ Jesus are children of God. His works of faith are attributed to them. And so they have a birthright to heaven through him. That's what we read in John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Yet to all who received him, received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Trusting in Jesus is like what? It's like feeding on Christ as the bread of heaven. The word of God become flesh. And therefore, if we trust in him, we are feeding on him as God's children. To the Israelites wanting bread from Jesus in John chapter 6, what did Jesus say to them? He said, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. What's the result of feeding on Jesus? Jesus tells us. Is it a guaranteed full belly in this world? Maybe. Maybe not. There are thin Christians, there are Christians who are a bit thicker. It's no guarantee by feeding on Christ that you will be a thicker or a thinner Christian. But what is the result? What does God guarantee? He guarantees eternally full bellies in heaven. That is what Jesus has got through his faithfulness, through his trust in God, and that is what we get if we trust in him. God's word promises those in heaven in Revelation chapter 7, verse 16, never again will they hunger, 
Never again will they thirst. So the question for all of us this morning is, have you used your belly, your stomach, as your spiritual thermometer to measure your relationship with God? Have you used your belly? Maybe your bank account. Maybe your paycheck. Do you distrust God because you don't have a full belly or a full bank account and question whether he really is your father? Think again. Why? Jesus was starving more than any of us have ever experienced, I'm pretty sure. And yet he was God's son. And not just God's son, but God's beloved son. And not just God's beloved son, but God's son with whom he was well pleased. And he was starving. Or do you think everything is going to be okay because you have a full belly, like most of Australian residents? And so you think you're right with God. Think again. Why? Because Jesus was God's son and Jesus knew what it was to be starving. He was God's son and he knew what it was to be starving. So what should we do? Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we should trust God and his word, which tells us what? To believe in the one he has sent, the word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. Believe in him. So let's have stomachs full of Christ, of the bread of life, the bread of heaven, the word become flesh. Let's have stomachs full of the promises of God that we find in his word. Let's make the word our daily bread by the Spirit's help. Remembering that the hunger that we have for physical food is really just meant to teach us how to hunger for spiritual food. And the satisfaction that we get from physical food, it's meant to teach us the satisfaction that we get from the spiritual food, which is God, Christ Jesus and his word. The joy that we get of eating food that tastes good is meant to teach us the joy of tasting God, tasting Jesus, tasting his word. The spiritual stomach is the only stomach that really is the spiritual thermometer. Let's fill it with Christ and his word. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, feed on him now before it's too late. Listen to me now. Feed on him now before it is too late. And you starve now, which is what you're actually doing right now. If you've never fed on Christ, your spiritual stomach is starving. And it will continue to starve for all eternity if you do not feed on him now. Feed on him. Trust in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That his work becomes your work. And that you have eternal life, a birthright in his name. And then join us in, joy, in living in joyous peace because God says we are his children, not our bellies. And join us in looking forward with joy to the heavenly life where there is no hunger, there is no thirst at all. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your kindness in giving us your word. We ask that you would forgive us for not trusting you and your word as Christ did. But Lord, we thank you for giving us Christ Jesus, the word made flesh. And help us not to measure our relationship with you by our stomachs, but to feed on your son, Jesus Christ, and to feed on your word by faith 
and to do so more and more and to know that we have eternal life in him because we trust in him. And Lord, if there is anyone here who doesn't trust you, who doesn't trust your word, who doesn't trust the son whom you have sent, may they realise how hungry their spiritual stomach is, that they are starving, and help them by the power of your spirit to trust in Christ Jesus now, to feed on him now, and have eternal life in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.